Welcome to the Athletes Mindset Academy podcast, where we help gymnastics coaches and parents develop happy, healthy athletes who know how to win. Let's get started. Hello and welcome everyone. This is Stacy with Athletes Mindset Academy and we are here today with a special guest. We're here with uh, Margaret, Dr. Margaret Rutherford, and she has written a book that just coincides perfectly with some of the things that we are talking about uh, called Perfectly Hidden Depression, How to Break Free from the Perfectionism that Masks Your Depression. And so much of, um, she is a Clinical? Yep. You, now I clinical, got that clinical, clinical psychologist. psychologist. Right. There we go. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, the book is just the, the tip of the iceberg of her work on this subject. And so we're so excited to have her here today to wrap up our month where we're talking about emotions and how to deal with emotions as an athlete. And I think that this will be a beautiful uh, ending of that. So, um, Margaret, do you want to introduce any more about yourself and your history than what I just said? <laughs> Thanks, Stacy, so much. Um, I wanted to establish I'm I'm not an athlete. <laughs> In fact, I am quite the opposite. I'm kind of a ditz, you know, when it comes to anything like that. But I, I do try. But um, I'm, I'm delighted to be here. I've had certainly my fair share of people in private practice who've come to me who either were in ballet or gymnastics or they were runners or they were, um, I remember a, a man came in and he was knocking 50 and he was a, a, a very internationally known. I didn't know, <clears throat> I didn't know him, but um, at his sport, internationally known and he, his body was betraying him and he couldn't, he couldn't do it anymore. He couldn't push himself anymore. There were no yeah. more supplements to take. There was nothing else to do. And he yeah. talk about grief. I mean, he was just yeah. besieged with grief. And so often, you know, people who are depressed or anxious or have some sort of emotional problems will turn to, to uh, athlete, athletics or yeah. some kind of physical exertion in order to handle that. Right. I just think uh, I can't wait to get into the topic with you. The um, it's kind of interesting. This I, I never wanted to write a book. I never had any intentions of writing a book. And then back about six years ago, I just was about to write my normal blog post for the for the week. And I thought about some people that I was seeing that um, basically the thing they had in common was that they struggled mightily to reveal or to connect with any kind of painful emotion. And so, and, and I just wrote this post called the perfectly hidden depressed person. Are you one? And it went viral. I'd never had anything go viral. I didn't know what it was. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and so I started looking around and I thought, wow, you know, there's some, a lot of stuff in the academic literature, but there was nothing, nothing that I could find that, that very distinctly, um, connected perfectionism and what's called destructive perfectionism is very different than constructive perfectionism with depression and even suicidality. Oh, I'd love to hear more about the differences between those. Oh, you got um, it. We'll go there. <laughs> yeah. Why don't we start there? Why don't we start sure. by talking? So we, you know, we have a lot of um, gymnasts in our, in our membership and in the people that we serve. And so um I always joke that I don't know if gymnastics creates perfectionists or if perfectionists are all drawn to gymnastics, but I don't know very many gymnasts who aren't 
what they would classify as a perfectionist as you know most most gymnasts would would view themselves in that way and in the gymnastics world it's often viewed as as a good thing it you know and and, yeah. and I actually just heard a high level athletes say the other day you know I perfectionism helped me a lot in gymnastics but it's not helping me in life outside of gymnastics no and mm-hmm. um I would actually argue that I don't think it's a good thing in gymnastics either or Mm -hmm. inside the sport either. I don't think that the things that are driving them to their success are actually coming from the energy of perfectionism. That's another topic, but maybe it'll come up in constructive versus be. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're, you're actually have pinpointed um, one of the huge debates in the literature about perfectionism is, is any of it very helpful or is all of it maladaptive? And there's, there's a good deal of talking about, you know, that there is this thing called constructive perfectionism. And my personal definition of that is that it's very process oriented. It's learning oriented. It's, mm. it's not fueled by shame or fear. It's more fueled by an innate kind of desire to do very well, but you can handle, you know, you, if you make a mistake or you don't win or something, you're able to not shame yourself for that, but say, okay, what did I learn from that? You know, and it's, I I remember years ago being in therapy myself because I'm a bit of perfectionist as well. And my therapist said, if you take the thumb out of your back, what do you think would happen? Because I was always pushing myself. And I said, I think I'd turn into a slug. Yeah. And it's that mindset that yeah. was troubling. You know, yeah. I felt like I had to keep the pressure on or yeah. I would just evaporate. Yeah. And so, you know, that's certainly going into the realm, delving into the realm of destructive perfectionism. So yeah. um, because destructive perfectionism is quite different. It is my version of it. And what I've talked about in the book is that somewhere in your childhood, you had to uh, develop a, a, uh, a strategy, an emotional strategy, a defensive strategy to handle what was going on in your life. Maybe, <clears throat> maybe you were only known for being the star of the family and, you know, your parents uh, uh, had abundant energy and passion for you becoming a gymnast, say. And so you learned that I have to keep that up because I am, that's where I get my, my, uh, my connection with my parents, or that's how I feel important. But you also could have been abused, you could have been neglected, you could have been, had to become a pseudo adult in your family where you were the one who was taking care of your other siblings. There are lots of paths to destructive perfectionism. um, But it's basically kind of having developing a strategy where you, you, you need to look perfect. Your life needs to look perfect so that you don't shame yourself. So you don't feel bad, you know, and about yourself. And you have this inner critic constantly that's in your head. You could do better. You could do better. You're going to be found out. You know, you're not who you think you are. Those kinds of voices. And they can be highly, highly troublesome. In fact, there are all kinds of studies, not to get uh, too morose, but there are all kinds of studies that are showing that for certain kinds of perfectionism, especially what's called socially prescribed perfectionism, which yeah. is constantly having to meet the expectations of other people. Okay. Meet or exceed, I would say. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That is very connected with uh, suicidality. So yeah. it's, it's a huge problem. Well, and I, I think that the connection is one of the reasons that we started Athletes Mindset Academy was um, Coach Amy just started 
seeing such a high level of suicides in the athletes in the high schools around her. Mm -hmm. And she just was like, we have these tools to really help them. And we're seeing so many, um, so many of our teenagers and the, the, I, I can't remember the study, but the level of the number of suicides in female athletics, we, we also work with men too, but in female athletics in the NCAA is like skyrocketed. Wow. In, in, in recent years, there's a wonderful book called what made Maddie run. I don't know if you've read it, but Mm -hmm. it's by Kate Fagan, who used to be an ESPN journalist. Okay. And, um, it was one of the books I read to prepare for writing. Well, actually I just read it because I was fascinated by the topic. And then again, this book sort of evolved, but, um, it came out, I think in 2017 and it was about a young track star, Maddie Holleran, uh, out of UPenn. And, um, uh, she did kill herself. She actually ran off a, uh, one of those, uh, huge buildings that are all parking lot, you know, and she ran off the top floor. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, you know, you, there was nothing on her Instagram that looked depressed. There was nothing. Her parents knew she was struggling somewhat. Uh, but, um, they didn't know obviously to the extent right. and you're right. The, the numbers are huge and exponentially yeah. increasing. Yeah. And I think it comes in with what you're talking about uh, in your book about it, the the perfectionism is something that I, I like. I think as a society we generally view it as as positive, um, especially in athletics we view it as necessary and positive mm-hmm. to to succeed, um, but it usually masks something. Um, very not positive going on underneath. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we don't see it that way on the outside. We see on the outside, these, what we would call positive manifestations of it, but on the inside, they're being driven by something, by something right. um, darker. So why don't you dive into that? Well, I mean, you, you just outlined the, the intent of my book, actually, <laughs> yeah. because the first step really, Stacy, is to say, what am I, what about my perfectionism is constructive? What is helpful? What is it about, you know, I just, just don't want to do something that I don't try to make it the best I can make it. I mean, I was a pianist and a vocalist. I was a professional vocalist uh, in my twenties and, you know, I was a jingle singer and we were expected to get in front of the microphone, read the music perfectly, <laughs> you know, in tone, everything. And then, or, you know, the next person was waiting to take your place if you couldn't right. do that. And so there was a lot of perfectionism there and, but how much of it is constructive and how much of it is actually, again, I will say fueled by shame and what the, the psychologies for it is compartmentalization. And what that word means is that you, you have, we all compartmentalize. In fact, you know, it's a healthy skill in many ways. I mean, let's say I'd found out this morning before this interview that, um, oh, I don't know, that I had a cousin who had who was sick, and I really love that cousin. Well, I would have to compartmentalize my concern for the cousin in order to do this interview. Well. Right, right. So, and, and, so we, and if I'd won the lottery this morning, I would have <laughs> had to compartmentalize that yeah. rather than saying, well, I don't need to do this <laughs> interview. Yeah. Yeah. So 
So we compartmentalize both positive and, and painful things. Yeah. But when you're a perfectionist and, and when you're the kind of destructive perfectionist I'm talking about, you very rigidly compartmentalize things. If, you, if you're sad, if you're lonely, if you're tired, if you're angry, if you're disappointed, you know, you, you, if you're hurt, you stick that in a box and you shove that box as far away from you as you can in, in some dark closet somewhere and you lock the door. Uh, and in fact, I remember a woman I was interviewing, I said, well, what if it just gets too overwhelming to do that? And she said, no, 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 no. If I don't have a big enough box, I'll build a bigger one. You know, it's that strong yeah. a uh, component of the, her need to be perfect looking. Yeah. Uh, the problem is- I remember when I started therapy, I was like, I actually use that analogy. I was like, I opened the box and now yeah. it's like Pandora's box. It, ooh, I can't close it again. It won't like, it. can I please stuff it all back in there? Oh, yeah. and, and I felt that like I, I've had this, this compartmentalized box my whole life and now I opened it and now it's just running amok everywhere. Yeah. And that's people's fear. Um, exactly. Someone uh, wrote to me, uh, I have a Facebook closed group and someone wrote in it the other day that she, she had seen my Pinterest list of the 10 core traits of perfectly hidden depression and her her response was you know this this seeing all of these 10 both brings incredible relief and incredible fear yes you know it's this it's this juxtaposition of if i really turn around and look at what i've been doing or what i've created I'm, I'm relieved that someone finally sees me and it has a name. It has a label, perfectly hidden depression, yeah. but it also scares the, you know, what out of me yeah. to actually look at it because of just what you said, I'm afraid everything will blow up. Yeah. Um, that's why it can be important to be in therapy when you work on this, but I, you know, in my book, I start small, start small, start small, start small. Yeah. And that's yeah. hard for a perfectionist, you know, <laughs> right. go no, for the you hardest stuff. Yeah, we got to fix the whole thing at once. <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah. But you know, it, it's, it was quite an honor to write this as well. You know, I was trying to figure all this out, Stacy. I mean, I, I, so I was writing about it, trying to, what is this thing I'm trying to describe? Yeah. And, and I would ask people uh, who might identify with what I was writing. This is just in my normal blogs if they would contact me and if I could interview them. And yeah. I interviewed about 60 people, anywhere from a brain surgeon to an advertising exec, to a motivational speaker, uh, to uh, graduate students. And, um, you know, what they told me, I, I would ask, why, why did you actually volunteer? I mean, here you are, no one in your world knows that you're struggling with this, but you're right. willing to tell some psychologist from Arkansas right. <laughs> what's going on. And they said, because I don't want anyone else to live the life I've lived. It is so lonely. It is so very lonely. And, um, you know, you can win all kinds of medals and you can, um, you can have a lot of accomplishment, but that doesn't mean that you have that sense of being fulfilled or loved yeah. for who you are, warts and all, yeah. you know, and so um, it can be, it can be very, very lonely. Yeah. That's really interesting that you bring it up. I, I hadn't, um, I, I hadn't associated those two things together before, but it's so true. And it makes sense because I mean, the biggest definer of being a perfectionist is you can't ever 
be vulnerable and show your, you know, show the negative things that you think. And if you're never vulnerable with another person or you're never, then you're never really actually connected. Like to have that human connection you long for, you have to be able to be seen for all of who you are. Exactly. And your very existence is about never being seen for all of who you are. Then, right. then that means you can't really ever really be connected. And I, and I think, um, and you'd have to educate me on this because as I say, I was never on sports teams, although my piano teacher wanted me to be a perfectionist. Um, I say, I think you're similar. <laughs> but you know, my guess is coaches approach a sport like you've got to compartmentalize. I don't care what happened to you this afternoon. I don't care what happened this morning. I don't care what grade you made. I don't care whether your boyfriend broke up with you, yeah. you know, concentrate on that bar, concentrate, you know, compartmentalize, compartmentalize. And so you can become so good at that, that you, you do it when it has nothing to do with athletic prowess. Yeah. You know, it just seeps into the way you live your life. Right. And uh, that can be quite, um, Again, I'll use the word lonely. Yeah. You know, uh, Brene Brown has done so much work in this area. And, you know, I didn't even know about her when I first started uh, writing back in 2016. I, I guess I was living under a rock or something. And, uh, <laughs> and so, you know, she talks about vulnerability being strength. And what she means, I think, is that you know, let's say I, I am, I'm an impatient person. I, I don't, I have a lot, of, I have oodles of patience with my patients, but right. I don't have much patience with myself. Right. You know, right. I'm very impatient with myself. And it's, and it's sometimes my friends go, just, would you calm down? You know, <laughs> my son, if we're waiting in the grocery store line, he goes, mom, do you have a plane to catch? Just calm down. So, uh, you know, but Actually, if you think about it, if I'm telling you, yes, I really struggle with impatience, then when someone says to me, hey, you know, take, you know, you're not trying to make a plane, instead of getting mad and saying, well, what are you talking about? I'm just going to go, yeah, it's me being impatient again. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's, it gives you strength. It gives yeah. you, if, if you are already open about what you struggle with and then you either see it yourself or other people may point it out to you. It's like, yeah, I know. I really, that's, that's me <laughs> in a nutshell. Yeah. 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 We talk a ton about, um, and I think this comes back to all of the stuff that we're talking about, but about learning how to allow emotions instead of resisting them. And I think that's mm -hmm. so much of both the compartmentalize and the, and the vulnerability is you're right. Coaches a hundred percent. It's like what happens outside of the gym stays outside the gym. When you walk through that door, you're just a gymnast and there's nothing going on. But in order for that to happen, in order to really do that compartmentalizing, you have to resist whatever emotion mm -hmm. you don't have to, there's another way, but we don't learn how to do anything else. We know how to resist an emotion. We know how to react to an emotion and we know how to buffer an emotion, you know, interesting behaviors that numb the emotion away. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the art of allowing the emotion and being able to let it be there and actually let it process through your body instead of resisting it. So we, my listeners will be tired of this because they're like, how many times am I going to hear the analogy? But we talk about like um, a beach ball. If you have mm -hmm. a beach ball in front of you and you're standing in water and you hold it under the water, you're just like resisting it, resisting it, resisting it. Eventually you get tired and it pops up and it's so intense. And 
we think that the experience of that emotion, that that intensity is like its lowest level. If I open that box up, I felt that emotion briefly and it was bad and it's just going to get so much worse, but it's actually the resistance of it mm-hmm. that, that causes it to be so intense and so painful. When we just let the beach ball float, just allow the emotion to be there, open up to it, let it process mm-hmm. through our body. Mm-hmm. It's just a beach ball. It's just floating there. It's not anything. It's not a problem. And I think that comes with what you were saying about the, like, when I allow that I'm I've got, I'm imperfect. When I allow that I'm impatient, I can be okay and be open that I'm impatient and I can deal with it. I don't have to like resist it and push it away. And I think, and, and I would say to, that's a wonderful way of putting it. I like your analogy. I'm not, <laughs> I think it's a great analogy. <laughs> it's um, not originally mine. It's actually my teachers, but <laughs> well, that's all right. We're just, you know, <laughs> emulation is the, is the greatest compliment, mm-hmm. right? Um, but I think the a way I have put it is that, um, you know, the harder you push something away, then what it does is it just kind of turns around. And it's like if you were living in a Cheerio <laughs> and you were in the middle of the Cheerio and you pushed away, all that would do is that it would come all the way back to where you are. And but you couldn't see it. It's behind so you now, but it's this there. is like if I push it away, it's going to be affecting me. All right. Yes. I, I just can't tell that it's affecting me. Yeah, I love that analogy. Whereas, whereas uh, if I see it right in front of me, but I can't tell you, Stacey, how many people walk in my office and said, I don't know how to feel my emotions. What are you talking about? Yes. To where that's I've had most, to get out. Yeah, <laughs> I've had to get out a child's list of emotions. Yes. And to say, all right, you know what are you feeling? Or I'll ask them, what do you think I'm feeling right now? Just to even try to get them to see if they can sense feeling in someone else, you know? Um, and, and uh, sometimes they're, they're, sometimes they're better at reading my emotions than they are their own. Interesting. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. I actually yeah, think yeah. that's funny. Well, I can coming, tune into you. Especially coming from people where maybe neglect or. Right not necessarily abuse, but even abuse for sure. But even just like situations where there was a lot of anger or things like that going on in the home, they had to to survive. They had to be able to understand what emotion a person around them was feeling. So they were prepared for what was going to happen, Exactly. but shut down their own emotions. Very vigilant, very vigilant and highly attuned. But I do think we talk about this all the time in athletics, like emotions are kind of a, a, a bad word. Mm-hmm. Um, and so most athletes are not able to identify or understand their emotions. All they know, all they've ever known how to do is resist them or mm-hmm. buffer them. Um, and they, they, um, and so we talk about that your, your feelings actually fuel all of your actions. Mm-hmm. And so if you want to be taking these actions that are really high level, it's going to be being fueled Mm-hmm. from the right fuel. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know how to feel your negative emotions, you also don't know how to feel your positive emotions. So you're literally running on empty. Yes. I mean, I think that that's a, a good point, an important point to make, because when you start clipping off the, the spectrums of emotion, you know, yeah. you clip off this end and this end, like you say, automatically get shorter as well to where you're living in this very uh, centralized emotional core of yourself, but you you don't have, it'd be like if I gave you a palette to paint from, but I only had four colors, 
Yeah. You know, there's the central colors that you're comfortable with. Yeah. And but the ones that maybe stir you or agitate you or sadden you, 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 you've cut off access to those. And so you're only painting with just uh, tolerable emotions. But you know yeah. what? I'm looking at that painting behind you, and it has all kinds of beautiful, subtly subtle colors. Yeah. And and but if I only could use four, that would make that a much drabber kind of, yeah. of piece. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of athletes talk about that. They go through their whole experience and they, they don't really feel the joy in it. Mm -hmm. And, and the only thing that's able to really feel is the actual physicality of it. Right. So I think then that's why there's so much pain in the loss of the sport when it's, when it's gone, because mm -hmm. the only thing that they really knew how to feel was the physicality. They didn't know how to feel the the emotions of the experience. And so my, then now they still can't feel any emotions and they don't have the physicality either. My trainer, uh, who is a wonderful friend of mine um, as well, uh, she definitely used exercise to yeah. handle feelings and a lot yeah. of them. And, and she got breast cancer. And so she was, she couldn't do what she yeah. could have done in the past because of her treatments. Yeah. And, and she was just lost there for a while. I mean, yeah. you mean I have to feel this, you know? And so, yeah, it's, it's quite a learning process. Yeah. Yeah, it is. But I think it's wonderful so the work y'all well are doing. It. Oh, I so think well it's wonderful. It. Oh, and you. and yeah, <laughs> that's wonderful to, to, to give another, uh, maybe side of the issue that's yeah. it's not as evident as what your coach told you or your yeah. father or mother told you or whatever. You've just got yeah. to, um, you know, come, become kind of monochromatic. Yeah. And, um, yeah. That's well, and you know, we, um, a lot of times in the athletic world, as in the rest of our society, it's, you know, thought that emotions are soft. Emotions aren't really very helpful. Um, emotions are the kind of thing to be put aside. And, you know, what we've, what we've learned is emotions are your fuel. And when you learn how to deal with the emotional aspect of your life, you can then begin to generate the emotions that you want and need mm -hmm. to actually fuel, you know, so we talk about perfectionism and we say like, when you think I have to be perfect or else you feel tense, anxious, um, fearful, and when you feel those feelings, you always, you usually do two things. You either kind of like hunch up, tense up. Mm -hmm. So your body literally gets tense and, and kind of like hunched in. And so like, if you're needing to do something in that sport, you're, you're not able to like go for expand. it with this freedom mm -hmm. of actual movement that you would normally, that you would normally do, or you go super hard, you go mm -hmm. like way more intense and either of those things produces a result of actually falling or missing or not doing it. And so the, yeah. the thought that I have to do it perfectly usually results in messing it up. Right. Your and cortisol, so, your cortisol levels are going out the wazoo. Out the roof. <laughs> and, but if you think, I know I've got this and it's okay if I don't, and you feel calm and open and confident. And when you mm -hmm. feel calm and open and confident, you go for the skill or you drive the ball for the shot or you do those things in the same way that you do it every time at practice and then you actually perform it at its best and so yeah. 
So one of the things that we've really tried to help athletes understand is while it can feel like, ah, I don't want to have to deal with the emotions. It's not just about dealing with them for the sake of being a healthier person, which you would wish that was enough motivation, but it's generally not. It's also literally what will help you win. It's literally what will help you perform at your best. It will help you actually do the things that you really want to do that you, when you can do them from this place of freedom and openness and without the pressure of it, because it doesn't mean all of these gigantic heavy things about you. Yeah. The word centered comes to mind. It's mm. kind of a, a centered calmness is what you're talking about. Yeah. I, the way I hear it. Yeah versus, um, uh, well, you're not putting a thumb in your back anymore. You're just yeah. allowing your back yeah. to, to yeah. Uh, function at its best. So, um, well, yeah, so we think that we have to beat ourselves up to perform, like push ourselves where we won't perform well, but it's actually the opposite. We take our best actions out of positive feelings, out of feelings that fuel us in the, mm -hmm. in those good ways. So mm -hmm. anyway, all right. So you said the first step that you teach is, is um, asking what about my perfectionism is helping me? But then what? Yeah, there's a, you just have to see, and of course, for a lot of the people that I've treated, because they read my work, they know it's not helping them at all. In fact, it's causing <laughs> a lot of chaos in their lives. And so, and again, they're very lonely because nobody knows them. So, mm -hmm. you know, the second step is to deal with, um, your commitment to it and to the change and to, mm. to be able to see that, you know, you, you can sabotage yourself from the get-go. I mean, you can try to do the hardest thing first. I mean, I, I worked with someone who was reading the book and, and the exercises, there are about 60 exercises in the book and they do get more complex as the book goes along. But she, she said, oh, no, I skipped the first ones. I just went to the trauma timeline. And she goes, I couldn't do it. Because you, you skipped the first 30. <laughs> it's like when athletes are like, well, I just want to like learn how to do the really hard skills. It's like, no, first you got to learn the basics. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I, you know, but I've had many people some, at least tell a similar story. Um, and Commitment is especially difficult with perfection, and and we we basically been talking about that. You just have to decide. You know, you're going to face your fear of what your life may look like. It will look different. It will feel different. But you know, and and so you have to kind of help yourself do that, and even develop some mindfulness. I think mindfulness is very helpful um, in this approach. The third thing is to look at all the shoulds and musts and have tos and can'ts and must always and nevers. And that's their CBD stuff, uh, not CBD, CBT stuff. Um, and we do the, the or else's and the what ifs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, what, what of all those are you carrying around with you that are helpful? You know, yeah, it's helpful for me to stop at a stop sign, you know, but do I, I stop at a stop sign? You should stop at a stop sign. Or else but, I might get in a car wreck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I, my, I have a sister-in-law who turns on her blinker to turn right about a oh, mile and a half before she turns. <laughs> and so, you know, that's not particularly helpful. I say, where are you going? <laughs> so sometimes she said, well, I've got to do that. I was like, oh, okay. So, um, 
anyway, we have these shoulds and musts, and yeah. some of them are very, very deep. And, you know, I must never be angry. I must never, um, you know, whatever. So uh, I'm Our, I, I find in athletes, the most common is I have to be perfect at yes. a competition. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like I should be perfect at a competition. I should never right. mess up at a competition. Right, right. Um, uh, I'm laughing because I, t I have, I have terrible balance and I tend to fall a lot. And on some of the, on some of the stages, of, I mean, my singing <laughs> career, I just fall off the stage. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it was embarrassing. <laughs> I trip on a cord or I do something anyway. Then the, the, the fourth stage is this uh, trauma timeline, which is a, not an easy thing to do. It's literally going back in your lifetime and looking at things that happened when you were two and four and six and eight and 12 and 40, whatever, and looking at the things that were painful, that, that, that were difficult, and looking at the things that were more positive and that sort of built your ego or made you feel safe and secure. But then you begin to see as you do that and as you work through it, all the connections that there are between something that happened when you were four and something that happened when you were 18 and a decision or a, or a, a trauma or whatever at that age can definitely, you can see, oh gosh, if that hadn't happened, then I would have had a different approach to this. Yeah. That can be both... Uh, as I said um, about the young woman who'd said that she'd seen the pen, both a relieving kind of thing. Oh, well, I, that makes sense to me now. I can acknowledge that that makes sense, but it's also frightening because you can think, well, wait a minute. Now, then now you found anger, you found, you know, uh, all kinds of emotions, disgust. Um, and so you've got to work through those, yeah. but you know, Stacy, I am, a, if I have a, a mantra that my own people get tired of hearing me say it is um it is insight insight is wonderful and it helps you connect the dots but where you get hope is from actual change mm. you see your behavior changing you you learn how to feel an emotion that you've never learned how to feel you stand up for yourself you're more assertive than you've ever been i don't care what the changes are uh but that's where you get your hope from. And I, yeah. I think as a therapist, my job is to help people feel hopeful yeah. about themselves yeah. and, and um, not hopeless and not demoralized. So um, the rest of the book is really um, devoted to now let's put some of this insight into action. Into action. Yeah. And, you know, that can be pretty scary for people who've never had any self-care, for example, Yeah. Um, which are, you know, rampant in this particular designation, um, then to actually stop and say, well, no, I, I, I don't want pizza. I want Mexican food. And they think the world is going to stop if they, if they say what they really want and, and, or what's important to them, or they stand up for themselves. And so, you know, it can feel, again, that was probably one of those I should never um, and so you're confronting that and there are all kinds of, uh, there, there are 10 traits in the book. And then I talk about the 10 changes you can make. Uh, but it, the list is endless really. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. it's, uh, it, but the fascinating thing to watch is as someone begins to say, you know, I want to do this to the best of my ability and 
and and as you point out, and I want to be fulfilled by it, um, then I'm sometimes not going to be perfect. Mm-hmm. And I and I can tolerate people seeing that in me. I can tolerate um, that I'm going to be disappointing. I can tolerate that I'm going to hurt my hurt somebody's feelings. I can tolerate that. I'm, you know, my body looks a certain way that it's never looked before. I mm-hmm. promise you that is a helpful strategy when you age. <laughs> I, can t- I like that. I like that. I promise you that's helpful yeah. um, because you're, you know, you lose more and more control. Um, but it's, it's fascinating to watch people. And, and the significant thing about, I would say, more than a handful of people who you know read my writing, saw me talk about perfectly hidden depression, came in because of that. I I can think of three of them right now off the top of my head who have said to me, "I had a plan to hurt myself when I walked in your door." Yeah, I didn't tell you, right? You no, know, but I had one. This was and my last ditch. Part that's the farthest thing from my mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so great. So a lot of the people listening um, are coaches and parents. Yep. And so we kind of always like to spend a little bit of time um, helping coaches and parents think about how to help their athlete, either their child or the, the athletes that they're coaching um, with this topic. And so, um, yeah, what are some advice, what's some advice that you would give to coaches or parents that recognize that their child is struggling with perfectionism and really want to try to help them? Well, I think you model vulnerability. Um, mm. I think that you, uh, I, I had an experience with, I have one son and he had done something in college that he was not proud of. And, uh, and he called me because he knew I'd done the same thing. Mm. And I helped him through it. I first, I had the typical mother reaction. Oh, and then I thought, yeah. oh, nope, 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 nope. Back up, back up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so then I just really helped him with what he had done. And what I realized after that, like it took a week to kind of meet it out and work through it. I realized that had I never been vulnerable with him, had I not said, yeah, I really struggled with this when I was in, I was in college, he would never have called me. He would have tried yeah. to handle it himself. Right. And so, um, I realize that, well, I probably, if you're a coach, you know, you're known to, to, if you're, if you're a, a well-known coach, you're, you're, you've won a lot. Yeah. And so, and yet I'm thinking about a young woman I'm seeing right now and she uh, was on a college scholarship and, and she ended up not doing well academically and she'd always done great academically. Um, but it was because of the pressure of what was going on or due to several factors, but it was huge. And so she ended leaving. And what she looked at me and said was, I, I know now the coach didn't care about how well I did academically it was how many mm-hmm. points I scored. Yeah. And if that's the message, uh, even though I realize it's, your reputation, you know, if you don't win, then, you know, that, I mean, look at uh, Gus Malzahn, he got fired <laughs> with a something like 64, 27, 37, something record. I mean, you know, I realize it's a tough world out there. And yet, um, like Maya Angelou said, you know, people won't remember what you said to them. They'll remember the, w- the way you made them feel. Yeah. And yeah. so if you want to be 
you know, a, a, a parent or a coach that means a lot to your, to your students or your, or your children, then, you know, how are you going to make them feel about themselves? Yeah. yeah. And, and, and how can you be appropriately vulnerable with them yeah. as well? So when they're struggling, they'll say, well, coach struggled, yeah. dad struggled. I, I could open up about struggling. Yeah. That's great. Great advice. Thank you so much. This has been awesome. Tell our listeners how they can find you, how they can follow you, how they sure. can get in touch. I have my own podcast called the self work podcast and it's on everywhere. Uh, Apple podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, anywhere you might look stitcher, uh, I've been doing that for four and a half years and we just, uh, in December passed 2 million downloads. So That's we're, awesome. yeah, we're really pleased about that. We say we, cause I have this wonderful team who helps me. Yeah. Um, it's not the, you know, we like, <laughs> like, I think I'm more than just an, I, uh, <laughs> the royal we right yeah. um my website is drmargaretrutherford.com and i blog there uh, regularly it's not a place uh my blogging has never been about making money everything i offer is for free um not my book my books at uh, amazon and uh, barnes and noble and um but it's it's um actually in uh, it's an ebook audiobook and paperback so it's a awesome. uh, and then don't forget those exercises, you know, <laughs> actually do them, right? You just actually yeah. do them. Yeah. We always say passive, passive learning doesn't change you. Yeah. So you gotta, you gotta take the active learning. <laughs> well, thank you so much. This has been delightful. I really am grateful for having you here and sure, thank you, um, I, I think for all of our listeners knowing that, you know, perfectionism is huge within the world of athletics, but there's just such a dark underside to it and being willing to open up, look at it, take what's good from it, but really be willing to do the work, both to change our culture as to what's expected to what's okay, what's acceptable and to change ourselves. So yes, so much I, I would totally agree with that. <laughs> Thank you, Stacy. Thanks for tuning in. We believe that you've got this but we would love to help you in your athletic journey. We know you need to get maximum results in the shortest time possible. So we've created a program with short, effective lessons and coaching that you can fit between practice and the rest of life. We coach parents, coaches, and athletes in the mental and emotional health tools they need to create an environment for athletes to thrive. Invest in the one thing that will have the greatest impact on your success, your mind. Check us out at athletesmindsetacademy.com. Let's do this.